be able to talk. Thank you. Thanks for all the help. Uh, and um, thanks, Rod. Uh, we're out of here. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening. listening to KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your Portland dial, KBOO.FM on your everywhere on earth internet dial. Stay safe, stay sane, stay tuned. KBOO, the best in community radio. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome a favorite guest back, Ms. Ann Ross. She is an attorney at Charleston Pro Bono Legal Services based in Charleston, South Carolina. Her practice is dedicated to helping survivors of human trafficking and on victims' rights with a particular interest in forced labor in agriculture. Anne has an LLM in Agricultural and Food Law from the University of Arkansas, where her thesis addressed U.S. and European laws governing the use and regulation of endocrine-disrupting pesticides. Anne has also worked as the Director of International Policy for the Cornucopia Institute, which is a national consumer education and watchdog organization that works to uphold the integrity of organic food supply chains. She has frequently lectured and led trainings on fraud detection in complex supply chains, and her work has been recognized in the Washington Post, Mother Jones, and other regional, national, and international outlets. Anne, welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you again. It is. And I want to just thank you for reaching out to me about a topic that wasn't exactly on my radar and it really needed to be, especially since we've conversed back and forth and I've learned so much more about human trafficking now and forced labor in agriculture. How did you become interested in human trafficking, specifically in agriculture? Yes, well, that's a great question. I think a lot of us now are really interested in where our food comes from and a lot of things about food and agriculture generally and the effect on public health or pesticides. There are a number of issues in this area. I'm particularly interested in the people who are working in our food system, the farmers, the farm workers, and oftentimes these folks are not recognized for all the hard work they do and unfortunately and tragically we see that human trafficking does occur 
uh, in agriculture and right here in the United States and in every state of the nation. Mm. You know, I meant to ask you, what is LLM? You have an LLM in Agricultural and Food Law. What does that stand for? Basically what that is, it's like a master's degree. It's a degree that one year of study, at least this particular program, is beyond a JD or a law degree. So it's a way to focus attention on one area of the law, and that's what I did with agriculture and food. Well, I think this is a perfect marriage of just what we need to clean up the food system, certainly make it more transparent and more humane and just. I wanted to ask you to define human trafficking exactly because I have to express my own ignorance in that when I think of human trafficking, I mostly think about it in terms of sex workers. But because of you and thanks to you, I've realized just how integral it is in our food and agriculture system. Yes, well, you're exactly right. It does involve commercial sex trafficking. In the U.S., there's a federal law, and there are two primary forms of human trafficking under that law, and one is commercial sex trafficking, and the other is labor trafficking. And when it comes to labor trafficking, we're talking something that's more egregious than labor exploitation. We're talking about the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel that labor, and The forced fraud and coercion can take its form in many different ways, from a trafficker withholding pay and earnings, requiring excessive working hours, verbal and physical abuse, threatening to withhold immigration documents. It comes in a variety of forms, and some are particularly uh, abusive. How does this illegal workforce make its way of course, this is a global problem, but how does this illegal workforce get into the United States? How is it that they are able to be exploited in this way? Right, and you are absolutely correct that it is a worldwide problem. 25 million people are estimated to be victims of forced labor at any given time in the world. As far as being lured into the U.S., oftentimes, traffickers will promise a better life, better wages. If you come here, life will be so much better. They will often charge recruitment fees, which are illegal. There was a case several years ago that where some Thai workers were forced to work on pineapple farms in Maui and paid over $17,000 apiece hoping to get a better life in the U.S. and and found the conditions dramatically different. So there are a variety of techniques that traffickers will unfortunately use to convince people that life will be better here and to come to the U.S. I believe it's estimated that around 15 to 20,000 people are trafficked across the U.S. border every year, but I think it's also important to remember that American-born people and others are also trafficked right here. A common misconception is that there has to be some sort of movement across borders to constitute human trafficking, and that's just not the case. A person can actually be trafficked right where they are. Mm. So maybe my choice of words wasn't the best when I said illegal workers. I was thinking of the cross-border transit of individuals who were 
brought through, say, with a coyote. That's the name of the people that bring them over illegally. And then how does that work exactly? How are these people brought over to work here when they have to go through legal immigration in order to come here? I'm confused. Yes. Well, there have been cases where, okay, so if you are passing over a border without legitimate work authorization or documents, that's technically smuggling. And what often happens in those cases is a coyote or someone for whom the coyote is working will charge the person that's being brought across the border for what they consider safe passage or they will create a debt that that person is supposed to work off once they get to the U.S. And that is one method of control that we see is that once that debt, real or imagined, is created, then a trafficker, once the victim is in the U.S., will continue saying, your debt is not paid, your debt is not paid, and the victim is essentially trapped. Oftentimes, immigration documents, if they exist, will be withheld, even passports in certain cases where the victim has a passport. And in that case, they can't even get back into their home country. Oh, my. Well, you had sent me a few links, both to print stories as well as some frontline investigations. And one example I thought I would bring forth had to do with a family, and this was pretty typical, where a family is poor, really hungry, and there is a child of working age, a young, strong male, say, for example, who is promised the ability to go over to the United States to find employment, and everything looks rosy, like they're going to get a job and they're going to help the family, but the family has to give up the deed to their home in order for part of that payment to bring the the child over the border to work. And then once the child gets over, they are paid, but then they have to pay for rent to live in squalid conditions. And I wondered how the money that they earned, that they were left, actually did go back to the family to repay that debt. Right. Well, oftentimes no money will go back to repay the debt. And it's such a horrible form of psychological control when a trafficker tells, for example, the child in this case, you haven't paid the debt and your family will lose title to their property. Your family will no longer have their farm. Your family will no longer have their property. They will be homeless. There are also instances where threats to the lives of family members have been used by traffickers to really gain control and keep keep victims working. Mm. Um, So this debt bondage, as they call it, is one method of trafficking and also threats to the lives of family members have occurred as well. If you don't stay, if you report this, your family is in danger. Right. What a tragic situation. This particular family, I wanted to go back to them because this poor young man was brought to the United States and he worked on a farm in Ohio. And of course, he's going from a warm tropical environment to a frigid one. He's living in a trailer with many other individuals, also assumed to be trafficked, and they don't have running water. 
they don't have heat, they don't have air conditioning, and they are working in a horrific poultry plant. And I'm thinking about being at the receiving end of this food system, right? I go into the grocery store, I look at the chicken in the packages, I look at the eggs in the crates. How am I to be able to say, I don't want those eggs, I don't want that poultry, that's disgusting and illegal? Right, and it's very hard to tell, and that is one of the challenges in our food system. So when I'm asked this question, I encourage people as much as I can to support their local and regional food systems to the extent you can know your farmer. It can be very difficult. There are labels out there for some products, such as Fair Trade. There's also food justice certification. I always say, though, that labels won't solve a human trafficking problem. So we have to be especially diligent. And one way consumers can get involved is by pushing their legislators to enact legislation that is protective. For example, California has legislation that requires companies with a certain amount of gross receipts to actually post on their websites what they're doing to make sure that there's no human trafficking or forced labor in their supply chain. So there is information like that available, and that information is listed or published in California. The Department of Labor also maintains a list of products and countries that the Department of Labor has reason to believe were produced by child labor or forced labor, and that's available on the Department of Labor website. So that's one place to start, even though that's not going to tell you specifically about a product in your store. If, if it's suspected, if you look at that list and you see, well, coffee from this particular country, there's strong suspicion the Department of Labor thinks could have been produced by child labor or forced labor, elect to buy another product. Right. Um, so these are some of the things that we can do. Is it necessarily a cheaper product that is more likely to be sourced from trafficked labor? I don't know the answer to that. I would say I doubt it that that's always the case because many of those companies or entities, if they are intent on a profit motive at all costs, then they may be charging high prices and also exploiting their workers. So I think that that's a difficult conclusion to make as an absolute certainty, but great question. Yeah. We will get back to that in just a moment, but because we're halfway through, I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Ann Ross. She is an attorney at the Charleston Pro Bono Legal Services in Charleston, South Carolina, and her practice is dedicated to helping survivors of human trafficking and on victims' rights with a particular interest in forced labor in agriculture. And I wanted to mention something about price because in one of the references that you sent me, there was mention of Taylor Farms in California, and they do leafy greens. They even have organic greens. So being organic versus non-organic product is not necessarily going to tell us that there's more or less trafficking involved in the production of that product. But Taylor Farms sells products to both Walmart and Whole Foods. So 
I sort of getting to my question about it, is it necessarily the cheaper priced product that is going to necessarily be more or less likely to be produced with human trafficking? Here's a great example of the Walmart versus Whole Foods. We really can't depend on the grocer per se as being a good source of non-trafficked products. Well, that's exactly right, and that's a challenge that we definitely have in determining where where a food product came from. As you mentioned, you know, something that's sold in Walmart could come from the same farm as something sold at Whole Foods. So it's very, very difficult to tell. And again, to the extent it's available, I really encourage people to buy locally if they can. Right. You know, in thinking through the question, I was feeling like we should be or there should be some pressure on grocers to sign documents saying that none of their products are going to come through the hands of trafficked labor. And I wonder if there's been any legal pressure put on, say, the the Kroger's of the world or the Walmart's and the Whole Foods to have a more responsible sourcing policy. Right. Well, what initially comes to mind when you ask that question would be the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And that's a fascinating story if your listeners aren't familiar with it. But essentially, in the early 90s, a group of workers in tomato fields in Florida came together and demanded fair wages and also really made strong efforts and progress in combating human trafficking that was happening in the fields there. What was born out of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers was the Fair Food Program. And the way that program works is there's an agreement between farm workers, growers, and retailers. And the retailers pay a small premium to make sure that the workers are are fairly compensated. And so if you look at the Fair Food Program, and your listeners can Google that, you can see which retailers have signed up and are part of that program. So that is definitely a way that one can tell at least something about if the workers are being treated fairly. Right. Yeah, there's so much smoke and mirrors involved in understanding really where our food does come from. And the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, I agree, and it's a great example of what can happen when workers come together. And so any kind of labor organizing is really in the best interest of all of us. I wanted to bring up two pieces of information that I thought were important with regard to this topic. One is unaccompanied minors coming across the border seem to be vulnerable targets. Right, they are. And the last statistic I saw was that just this year, approximately 90,000 children attempted to cross the border unaccompanied. And that is a very sad statistic. What happens is that when a child comes across the border or is met at the border by agents, then they are placed essentially in foster care for a short period of time. There have been instances where sponsors or people who will take that child on who are not family members but are located in the U.S. have turned out to be traffickers. 
and these traffickers have taken the children as sponsors. HHS, the government agency, has turned these children over to the care of the traffickers and of course they were not cared for. They were actually forced into labor. This has occurred in agriculture and and hopefully this is something that has been stopped or certainly going to stop because it has been a problem and it's well documented and been covered and by major news outlets. Hmm. The other issue I wanted to bring up has to do with COVID and how COVID has amplified the problem. So not only are these quote-unquote essential workers being placed at risk for COVID, but it also has made it easier for people to be trafficked. What is the connection there? Yes, well, it has made it easier for people to be trafficked because trafficking victims are isolated generally. Well, COVID increased that isolation. So it was they were isolated not only by their own movement being limited, but the detection was less likely to happen because most people, at least to some extent, were not getting out as much as they were. So this was and is still a big problem. Also, as we know, they were deemed essential workers and forced to work, not in a trafficking sense necessarily, but they had to remain on the jobs in in high-risk environments. So I think it's really important that we remember, okay, these are essential workers, not just during a pandemic. Do you want to say anything about the Blooming Onion case, Operation Blooming Onion? There was an indictment in November of 2021. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Right. Just recently, there was an indictment, and this occurred in in Georgia, actually. That's where the indictment was handed down against 24 alleged traffickers. And in that case, it's alleged that they submitted over 71,000 false H-2A temporary non-immigrant worker applications to immigration. They brought workers into the U.S., and these workers faced absolutely horrific conditions. They were fenced in. They were held at gunpoint. There are allegations of rape. Two individuals lost their lives during this terrible, terrible ordeal. And it began, according to the indictment, around 2015. The workers were brought from Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras, and the traffickers profited over $200 million from this illegal scheme. Wow. So it really is horrific, and they were also bought and sold amongst traffickers. Mm. So it's hard to believe that these things occur, but they do. And fortunately, there, there should be some justice in this case. How did these cases come to light? So there has to be some sort of oversight, you know, some sort of whistleblowing activity that makes the case come into focus to the Attorney General's office, for example, or legislators. How do we see this largely invisible problem to make corrections? Right. It is very, very difficult to detect. And as I mentioned before, workers are certainly not incentivized to report. And often the traffickers will do anything to keep them from reporting. But there have been cases where 
workers have come forward. There are also cases where people notice something that's just not quite right and contact law enforcement. These are a couple ways. And then there are some seemingly even random ways that trafficking has been identified. And I'll give you one example, not from labor trafficking, but sex trafficking, where a, a young woman was sex trafficked and the revelation came out when she was taken to the hospital for an appendicitis and was put under anesthesia. She told the healthcare workers. So it is also worth mentioning that healthcare workers can often identify trafficking if they make it to actually receive medical care. Right, because so many of these operations have their own medical staff. In fact, there was one case that was identified with Frontline having to do with COVID where people would say, yes, I'm not feeling well, and the person in the front supposedly, you know, looking over the health of the employees would say, oh, go ahead, you can go ahead and work. So it is very difficult to get this information out. And I wondered, it almost seemed as if law enforcement in some cases turned a blind eye. Yes, there have been cases where law enforcement has turned a blind eye. There are also cases where there have not been enough law enforcement personnel dedicated to this issue. And that's one thing that many states have struggled with is getting the resources they are necessary to train law enforcement on this issue because a lot of times it's not so clear exactly what's happening in these cases. So yes, there need to be more resources dedicated to identifying trafficking and providing resources for victims. I did see that there's a human trafficking hotline and it's 888-373-7888. And I will provide that link in the show notes. Again, that's 888-373-7888. Do you want to say anything about the hotline? Yes. If you are suspicious that someone you know may be a trafficking victim or anything that you think uh, law enforcement could use in terms of identifying victims, even if you're not sure, call this hotline. It it has been very, very effective in helping identify victims. And just this past year, over 22,000 victims and survivors were identified through this hotline. Since 2007, over 60,000 victims have been identified through this hotline. So please use it if you have information. And is that run by the Department of Labor? Who oversees that hotline? There is a national nonprofit called Polaris, and they have a partnership with the federal government, and they run this hotline. And there are a lot of statistics out there about this hotline, the types of cases that are reported, and Polaris has a lot of educational materials on their website. And I think if anyone wants to learn more about human trafficking, that's a good place to start. Okay, I will make sure that we provide a link for our listeners there. Does public shaming do any good? You know, I'm looking at some of the agricultural operations that were targeted. Central Valley Meat Company in California, for example, I thought it was interesting that their website espouses family values, and yet there have been all of these offenses. There's the Trillium Farms in Ohio, 
There's, of course, Jack DeCoster, who was famous for his horrific poultry plants in Iowa, but he's also got plants in Maine and Ohio. Does bringing this information to the public raise awareness enough so that those farms change their practices? Well, consumer voices and consumer dollars definitely are power. I think that the information has to be so widespread and disseminated so well to change market forces. But we have to keep pushing on that front. We do. And um, demanding more about learning where our food came from and requiring companies to disclose, for example, country of origin and things like that. So absolutely, I think it's important that we name names in this effort because otherwise the folks out there who aren't doing the right thing, the companies, they will continue this practice because after all, their motive is profit. Right. Oh, and our time is up, unfortunately. I want to thank you so much for your work in this area. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Ann Ross, attorney at Charleston Pro Bono Legal Services based in Charleston, South Carolina. And again, her practice is dedicated to helping survivors of human trafficking and on victims' rights with a particular interest in forced labor and agriculture. And thank you so much for your time and for focusing on this. And we will provide many links for our listeners to learn more. Thank you so much. Enjoy being with you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Eva Greenthal. She is a senior science policy associate at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, where her work focuses on food labeling, food safety, and scientific integrity. Prior to joining CSPI, Ms. Greenthal led a pilot evaluation of the nation's first hospital-based food pantry in Boston, and she worked on research initiatives related to alcohol literacy and healthy habits for young children. She holds a dual MS and Master's of Public Health degree in food policy and applied nutrition from the prestigious Tufts University, as well as a BA in environmental studies from the University of Michigan. Welcome, Eva. Hi, Melinda. It's great to be with you. Well, CSPI hosted an excellent webinar on the Food Labeling Modernization Act of 2021, and I thought it would be of use to our listeners to go over not only some of the highlights of this bill, should it pass, but also some of the shortcomings that we as consumers face in the marketplace when it comes to buying processed and packaged foods. And that number is quite significant. I think I saw a statistic that 65% of calories that Americans consume come from processed foods. And those foods, of course, come in a package. So tell me, how did you become interested in labeling? That's a great question. I think, really, I started as a consumer. And just like everyone else, I spend a lot of time at the grocery store shopping for food and find it a very overwhelming task (laughs) to identify foods that'll be 
healthy and nourishing for myself and my family and I'm in the policy advocacy arena and I think there are advocacy tools, the policy tools that can be used to improve the food label and to make it much easier for people to select healthy foods. And so I, I've put a lot of energy into that over the last few years. Well, the Center for Science and Public Interest has a long history of working on the Hill, trying to get policies passed to make our food system a bit more transparent. And so I commend your efforts on that. This particular bill, I know that we are working on that. We are. It is in process. It's titled the Food Labeling Modernization Act of 2021. And I want to talk about some of the loopholes and shortfalls that labels have right now that this act is hoping to correct. And of course, I am a big fan of pulling back the curtains on food labels. One of the things that irks me are misleading labels that make processed foods look healthier than they really are. And I wondered if we could just go through some of those labels. I think you had a blueberry bagel package this was under the misleading fruit and vegetable claims and the package artists that create these wonderful looking visuals really do suck us in right so we buy food with our eyes first and how many of us are really looking at the fine print when we go to the store we're looking at bagels we think oh yeah blueberry bagel that will be healthy are blueberries really in bagels usually well, I can speak to the particular product that I pulled into this slide you saw in this webinar, and, and it's this blueberry bagel product, and you can it's a clear package, so you can see through the bag to the actual bagel, and you can see these blobs of blue that for all you would know, they're dried blueberries or blueberries somehow preserved in this packaged product. But if you look closely at the ingredient list, you learn that it's actually something called blueberry gumbit, and the first ingredient in blueberry gumbits is sugar. And there's also some blue food dye in there. And then it's not till the end of the ingredients list in the contains 2% or less section where it says there's just a tiny little amount of actual dried blueberries in this product. So it's pretty misleading to call them blueberry bagels and to make it look like these gobs of sugar are real blueberries. So how would the Food Labeling Modernization Act correct that label? So what the Food Labeling Modernization Act will do is require that on any food that makes a fruit or vegetable claim, and that could be the word blueberry or an image of a, a blueberry or another fruit or vegetable, those products will need to have a disclosure of the amount per serving of blueberries or of the fruit or vegetable in common household measures. So that would be, for instance, teaspoons per serving. And then for a product like these blueberry bagels where it's basically a negligible amount, the bill wouldn't require that it say one sixty-fourth of a teaspoon. It would, below a certain amount, have to say contains no servings of blueberries. And wow. that will at least help counteract the misleading claims about fruits and vegetables. Exactly. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting, too. Another product you brought forth that has been on my pet peeve list for a long time is Sunny D. And it's ironically sold in the refrigerator case. And years ago, when I was working on childhood obesity issues, I remember investigating this product, and I was told that it actually didn't really need to be refrigerated. 
it already has a requirement you know juices and beverages have to have the percentage of juice listed and of course sunny d has only five percent juice despite the fact that they've got beautiful images of citrus fruits on the label and i think a lot of parents buy this beverage i, th I think it's got fortification with vitamin c so it's basically like taking a vitamin supplement in a sweetened beverage but it's got a lot of sugar and not a lot of fruit juice so how would this act improve that label Exactly. Sunny D indeed is, the, is one of my pet peeve products as well with its pictures of oranges on the front. And another issue that I think makes the labeling of that product particularly misleading is the 100% vitamin C claim that's very prominent, whereas the 5% juice disclosure is in smaller print on the back. The 100% vitamin C is on the front, and that's something that parents might confuse with saying 100% juice or having the same nutritional value as 100% juice. So the Food Labeling Modernization Act would put the amount of juice disclosure on the front of package rather than on the back so that parents and any consumer would be more likely to see it and have it counteract the other marketing claims on the front. Yeah, that's fantastic because I know you do have to look hard to find that 5% juice. So that's excellent. So that would move it to the front of package. And we should talk about the front of package labeling. And I think what was so interesting in your webinar was that by having a requirement for front of package labeling, basically alerting consumers to a product that contains a large amount of sugar, for example, or a low amount of real fruit juice, that triggers industry reformulation. Yes, absolutely. So when we talk about front of package nutrition labeling in general, we're usually referring to a system of labeling that takes key information from the nutrition facts label, which can be very complex and, and requires more time and literacy and numeracy to analyze and utilize. It takes that information, simplifies it, uses things like colors or shapes or symbols, graphic representations, and puts it on the front of the package. And this is really a more accessible, quick and easy tool for consumers looking to evaluate the healthfulness of foods and, and compare one food to another. Yeah, and I really like the way it not only would alert consumers to a product they might not want to buy, but again, this idea that it would push the industry to say maybe add less sugar to their products or less sodium by having some sort of warning. And I think just to give our listeners a visual, these are things like stoplights or grades like A, B, C, or D. Do you know which of those front of label package tools are the most friendly to consumers that are most understandable? So it's clear from the research that the simpler the better and that's part of why we particularly advocate for high in sugar, high in saturated fat, high in sodium warnings. And the other reason, like you alluded to, is the effect on industry and reformulation. So there's actually dozens of other countries now who have implemented government-led front-of-package labeling. And in many cases, this is ma a mandatory requirement that companies put these high-end labels on the front of their packages if their products exceed certain levels of salt, sugar, and fat. 
And Chile is a country, one of the first countries to implement this in, two, in 2016. So we have some really great data coming out of Chile evaluating the impact of this law on their food supply. And we see really important, significant decreases, especially in the sugar, in the processed food supply, which really shows that industry is reformulating foods with lower amounts of sugar to avoid having to put a high-end sugar label on products, which is a fantastic outcome from a public health perspective because it doesn't even require consumers to change their behavior. It's, there's a difference in what's available to them in the store. Right. And until we have this kind of regulation in place, consumers really have to rely on what we have right now. Since we're talking about sugar, I want to bring up another area where there is a lot of confusion, where people are go, they're thirsty, they maybe they stop for gas, they run inside a, a quick convenience store, and they think, well, you know, I'm not going to get a soda, I think I'm going to get something more healthful, so I'll get a bottle of green tea. So green tea, as we know, is high in antioxidants, we think it's a healthy beverage, until we start looking at the amount of sugar in these some of these products. But what concerned me was that some of these beverages actually say lightly sweetened or just a tad sweet when they actually contain 20 to 25 grams of sugar per bottle, which is considered to be one serving. And I think it's important, since most people don't speak in terms of grams, for us to translate that. So anytime you see a gram number, you divide by four to get the teaspoons. So if you've got a bottle of green tea and it's got 20 grams of sugar per serving, you divide by four and you find out that it's got five teaspoons of sugar. And the American Heart Association recommends no more than six teaspoons of added sugar per day for women, no more than nine teaspoons per day of added sugar for men. And for children younger than two years, they should have no added sugar at all. So how will the Food Labeling Modernization Act improve upon things like green teas and other beverages that contain an inordinate amount of sugar? Yes, this is a big problem that we have several key products on the market right now that call themselves lightly sweetened, slightly sweet, sort of sweet, but actually have enough added sugars in them to qualify as a high sugar product. And of course, a product can't be both low in sugar and high in sugar at the same time. Part of the issue here is that the FDA defines the types of claims that companies can use. So it defines what low sodium means and what low fat means and what level a food has to have to bear those types of claims. But the agency has not set a level that defines what low sugar means or what low added sugar means. And so companies are making these kind of implied low sugar claims at any level because there's no official level. So what the bill will do is it will set a level and that level will be one at which a product would actually be low in added sugars. And that is a, around three grams per serving rather than 20 to 25 grams per serving. And then that three grams would be less than one teaspoon. And gosh, I have advocated for years to move those grams over to teaspoons so people could understand that. And I know that the industry has pushed back 
on making that transition. It's probably better for them, for consumers not to know. I want to call out Honest Tea in particular. They're an organic tea, so people might assume that it's going to be healthier than the next. And certainly organic farming methods do have an advantage over conventional ones. But for Honest Tea to put a label on that says just a tad sweet and then have 25 grams of added sugar is just not very consumer friendly. I need to just take one break, Eva, and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Eva Greenthal. She is a senior science policy associate at the Center for Science and the Public Interest. And her work focuses on food labeling, food safety, and scientific integrity. She recently hosted a webinar on food labeling and the new front package labels that we hope to see changed through the Food Labeling Modernization Act of 2021. Of course, it will take time to get this bill passed, and then it will require probably at least a year or more before manufacturers will have to change their labels. So we're dealing with how to navigate food labels today as they are with their deficits. Let's talk about some of the other issues that this act is going to look at. For example, caffeine. I never really thought about the products that I might buy in the supermarket that contain caffeine, such as like if I'm going to buy coffee ice cream. How would a consumer know how much caffeine is in that? Well, currently on most foods, there's absolutely no way to know how much caffeine is in a product. So if a determined consumer might reach out to the company, they may or may not respond with the information or required to. And that's something the, the Food Labeling Modernization Act will address by requiring labeling of the caffeine content and the milligrams of caffeine per serving. Good. And the label would require it if the product contained more than 10 milligrams per serving. And I think you had an example of a haagen coffee ice cream. And how much caffeine was in one serving? Do you recall? Again, it's really difficult to find out the actual amount. But from some information we've seen from the company, it appears there's about 29 milligrams of caffeine per serving in haagen coffee ice cream which you know is a substantial amount of caffeine and, and some people need to limit or avoid caffeine so it is really important information to know and to have on the label right and i think it's also important to look at the per serving size so for ice cream it might be half a cup but maybe for the average consumer it's more like half a container so we have to do the math to realize just how much more we're getting of each of those nutrients Let's move on and let's talk about two labels that drive me a little crazy. And those would be the healthy label and the natural label. And you had one of my favorite scientists in your webinar, Mike Hansen from Consumer Reports. And he's a senior scientist there and he showed some striking data about how people read the natural label what people expect from the natural label, like what they expect it to mean versus what it really means. And consumers actually preferred the natural over the organic label, even though the organic label delivers so much more. So what would the Food Labeling Modernization Act do to help protect consumers about any misunderstandings about what the natural label means or does not? So what you said, Melinda, is exactly right. Consumers are hugely confused about the meaning of the term natural when it's used on food labels. People think that it tells you something about 
whether pesticides were used in the production of the food, whether there is genetically modified ingredients, processing aids, all these different things, none of which the term actually means because it's very ill-defined and poorly regulated at present. So what the Food Labeling Modernization Act will do is require that if a food label uses the term natural, it also has to include a disclosure with the definition of that term, and, and that would then require FDA to create a definition for the term. And this would really be an educational initiative to dispel the widespread misconceptions about the meaning of natural. And it will also be important to the organic food industry that currently faces really unfair competition from the natural food market. Absolutely. And ditto for the label healthy. I know that those of us who work in public health have been clamoring for some kind of definition for healthy, but there really isn't one, is there? So healthy is another very ill-defined term at present, and there's a little bit more there than for natural, but the FDA has said they're currently in the process of creating a strengthened uh, and a new updated definition for healthy. So it depends whether the Food Labeling Modernization Act passes first or FDA comes out with its new regulations first, but the FLMA would add some really important requirements for foods that want to call themselves healthy, like limiting the amount of added sugars in those foods. If it's a grain food, it would have to have 100% of the grains come from whole grains. It would have a revised sodium level to align with the current recommendations around sodium consumption and important changes like those. Right. And I think that it's so important for people to understand that there are no strong legal definitions of those terms, natural and healthy, but boy, do they convey a benefit to the consumer in the marketplace. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to gluten labels, gluten-free. I thought it was interesting that 1% of the American population, or 3 million Americans, have celiac disease. And I think it's important for those individuals especially to realize that gluten is a toxin for them. 13% of Americans are somehow gluten intolerant or sensitive. And then 23% of Americans are actively looking to avoid gluten. And there is a requirement for foods to state on the label if they contain wheat because people with celiac disease or who are gluten intolerant must avoid wheat, but they also have to avoid barley and rye. And I thought what was so interesting is that ingredients such as yeast or smoky flavors or malt syrup could have a barley base and therefore cause a problem for individuals with celiac disease. How do people with celiac disease navigate this space now? Yeah, so having spoken to lots of advocates from the celiac disease community, people who have it themselves, who have children with celiac, I've learned that it is just a nightmare to navigate food labels and to figure out which foods they can and can't eat because they have to look very closely at the ingredients list, which has its own issues. It's very small and in this condensed font, all capital letters often really not a user-friendly tool, especially when you're trying to look for things that pose a serious risk to your health. And 
that's why there are rules around certain major food allergens, one of which is wheat. But the rules for labeling major food allergens haven't previously taken to it, into account the gluten-containing grains, which are wheat, barley, and rye. And so what the Food Labeling Modernization Act will do, and this is really something that will pose a huge benefit to the celiac disease community and anyone else who needs to avoid gluten-containing grains, is it will more clearly identify the same way it does other major food allergens, whether foods contain barley or rye, including in the natural flavors or in yeast extract, malt syrup, these types of ingredients that don't have barley in their name, but actually do contribute barley to the diet. Yeah, that is just so interesting to me. You know, basically, if an individual is suffering with celiac disease or gluten intolerance, the best thing for them to do is cook from scratch and not use any processed foods unless we have much better labeling in the marketplace. The other area that the act would include would be phosphorus content. And I recall going to a dietetics meeting many years ago looking at phosphorus in the diet and how many additives contain phosphorus and how detrimental they are to anyone with kidney disease. So this new Food Labeling Modernization Act would require phosphorus content on the label. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and this is another one like caffeine where it's just it's this component that's present in food, but it's completely opaque currently for consumers how much phosphorus is in those foods and it's just something that you would have to reach out to a company to find out about and the food labeling modernization act would require that it be on the label and the amount per serving yeah we just have a few minutes left and i do want to give you a chance to bring anything forward but i have to touch on one topic that i think is so critical and that has to do with artificial food dyes and you brought this up in the webinar in the European Union, a warning statement is required on food labels where artificial food dyes are included. Not so in the United States? That's right. There's no warning required in the United States, and there's actually um, no disclosure at all required other than in the ingredients list where they might not be clearly identified as artificial colors. So the Food Labeling Modernization Act would require a disclosure. It doesn't go so far as to include a, a warning, but this should hopefully indicate to parents, especially the children who have predispositions to hyperactivity and behavioral issues that might be exacerbated by consuming foods with artificial colors to the presence of those in foods. Yeah. All right. This is a huge bill, and it's going to take a lot of continued work. Bring forth anything else that you want our listeners to know. Sure. So I think one element of the bill, a couple of elements of the bill that we didn't touch on yet that I think will be really impactful for all consumers. One is online food labeling. Currently, the food labeling laws don't cover foods sold online. They only refer to what's required on the physical food package, and that's just because they're outdated. They were written before anybody anticipated we'd be shopping for groceries from our homes. And so the Food Labeling Modernization Act will require that all the information um, related to nutrition and ingredients required on food packages is also available at the point of sale 
online. And that's a really important change for the modern consumer. Anything else? If we're running out of time, I'll just end by saying that it's been more than 30 years since the government overhauled food labels, and that, that was in 1990 with the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act. It is about time that labels get another update, and the Food Labeling Modernization Act will do that. It will make some key changes that are really in the interest of consumers, of transparency, and enable people to make healthier choices. So we're really excited about the bill move forward. And what can consumers do to help that bill move forward and where can they learn more? So the best way to advocate for the FLMA is to write to your representative urging them to support the bill. And you can do this by visiting Center for Science in the Public Interest website, which is cspinet.org. And you can go to our Take Action page and find our Action Alert, which makes it really easy for you to write to your representatives to support the FLMA. Great. And that's cspinet.org. All right. And I will provide a link to that also in our show notes. There is a lot more to review about food labels. You had a lot of good examples in the webinar. I think reading the ingredient label is a really important piece of advice that we can give consumers until we have much better front of label information as well as fixes to some of the loopholes that exist today. We've got to close, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Eva Greenthal, Senior Science Policy Associate at the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Thank you so much for your time today, Eva. Thanks so much, Melinda.
KBOO Portland. Coming up next is Jazz Lives, right after these news headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy miércoles 19 de enero del 2022. Mientras las personas más ricas del mundo se reúnen virtualmente para el Foro Económico Mundial, la Organización Mundial de la Salud advirtió contra la persistente desigualdad en materia de vacunas. El doctor Michael Ryan dijo, si observamos la población mundial en total, más de la mitad de la población del mundo ha recibido dos dosis de la vacuna. Pero si miramos en África, nuestra oficina regional africana indica solo el 